Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Read the first 18 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he writes from prison, and he's about to depart. He says even in this text, my departure is at hand. Paul at this time has the kingdom on his mind, something to remember as we consider the petition, thy kingdom come, that we are to make with Paul and with all of the saints who long for the kingdom to come. The Word of God at 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 18, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I have left with Carpus at Troas when you come and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We consider at this time the second petition of the so-called Lord's Prayer, which is the prayer of disciples, really, and that is the prayer, Thy kingdom come, with reference to God the Father, we pray, Thy kingdom come. 
This is closely connected to the first petition we need to remind ourselves of. The first petition is really the only petition and all of them after are subservient to it. The first petition is that the name of God would be hallowed. That's every revelation of him, especially the name Jesus. And so now we're praying in connection with that first prayer, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and the connection is this, that God's name would be hallowed in the way of the coming of his kingdom, his will being done, and so on. We have been considering this prayer, and we shall, God helping us, from the perspective of Jesus, as we always do, but now as he taught us to pray all things in his name, with the expectation that as we pray in God's Son's name, we shall be exceedingly advanced in our sanctification and blessed with all the blessings that God himself can give and who will give because he loves his Son. And when we come in the name of Jesus, his Son, God knows that we love his Son, and he loves us all the more for that. And so there is this perspective we would consider, and may it be the perspective you have and I have in all of our prayer life. We are about the name of Jesus, and we come in the name of Jesus praying and living with the praise of our great God. So we consider now the prayer, Thy kingdom come. This, in fact, is what Jesus was all about and the Apostle Paul, as we have read in 2 Timothy 4. Jesus, when he came, reminded the people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. John the Baptist did, but then Jesus after him. And when Jesus came, the kingdom of heaven was among them. And he even said that he had one thing, one mission on his mind. He was sent for this one purpose, to preach the kingdom of God in Judea and in all of the Israelite world. For Paul, it would be left to preach to the Gentiles and to the church as well, but Jesus had the kingdom of God in mind as it was manifest among the Jews, but he himself would uh, remind the people that he had other sheep besides the fold of Jewry. His would be the perspective of the fulfillment of all things and the kingdom in all the world. But the kingdom of God, that's what we want to consider. On Jesus' mind, something that, that was the concern of the apostle and that has been the concern of all God's people throughout the history of the nations, the kingdom of God and that it would come. So in my name, Jesus' name, we consider thy kingdom come. First of all, we want to consider what that kingdom is, what kingdom, and then we want to focus on the fact that there's only one. Secondly, we want to consider how the kingdom comes and also how it does not. Finally, we want to consider our prayer for this, our longing for this, our life for this, and our love for this kingdom and for its coming. What is the kingdom of heaven? We've sung several psalters about it. Jehovah reigns, let the earth be glad. He reigns, and though the idols are many, yet Jehovah is the only living God who shows his being alive and real in his 
having a kingdom, and it is ruling over all. He shows even that he is king, even though there's others who are rebellious subjects of this broader kingdom of his, and that's what we want to say first of all. God is king over the whole universe that he's made. <coughs> In our catechism class, we would learn as an essential of Reformed doctrine that God is sovereign over creation that he's made, and he shows his sovereignty in his providence. He rules all things, and he upholds all things. This is what we call providence, the providence that also led to an accident, as we call it this morning, and led also this past week to earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. God is providential. He's God. That's all we're saying here. And all the Reformed faith says God is God, but also with regard to his kingdom. He's the king. He's the king in power, as we say, in great might and sovereignty over the things that are small and the things that are tall, the things that are great, the things that are insignificant, as we would call it, the atoms, the ants, the aardvarks, and also the kingdoms of this world. God is all mighty, and his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory we're going to be saying at the end of our prayer, and this is because he is God. The God of creation, the God of providence, is the God of a kingdom, a realm, and that includes everything, therefore. No one who is without the scope, outside of the scope of God's kingdom. All are servants of his, because there's only one throne and room on the throne for one king. That's God. We understand that. That's the kingdom of God. That is, that is the fact of the truth of the Bible and all creation that says everybody must bow to one God and to that God who's judge, we must all give account. It is something that has to be emphasized, however, that that is not, that kingdom of God in power, what the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is all about. Having said a bit and tried to wax eloquent even on that, we must say that the kingdom, which is the petition, thy kingdom come, is a different kingdom than the kingdom merely of power. It's called the kingdom of God in the Bible and the kingdom of heaven and of the Christ of God. To distinguish it, in fact, is this kingdom from the kingdom universally of the world, that is, the powerful reign of God and realm of God so that everyone is subject. There's a kingdom within that kingdom of which Jesus is speaking when he teaches the disciples to pray. It's the kingdom that he calls the kingdom of heaven and of God that is established in the blood of Jesus. And where the blessings of the citizens of that kingdom are not of this world. They are spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now how convenient... How important for us, therefore, to remember that we're praying in the name of Jesus for this kingdom to come. 
When Jesus says, therefore, to pray in the name of Jesus and then to pray that Father's kingdom would, would come, he is himself on the mind. And he is, and his glory is, because it's the Father's purpose, is front and center on his mind, and he would turn us to this amazing kingdom, which is his. He is the king who is this king of the church. Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism has remind us that the Son of God, who ascended on high, is now busy by his spirit and word gathering his elect from the four corners of the world to be a church. And there is something very tangential, no, correspondent between church and kingdom. In fact, the church is the kingdom of heaven. There is this synonym that is for the kingdom, and that is the church in its essence. This is something very important to understand. In its institution, the church, uh, the, the kingdom is manifest. The marks of the king, the sacraments, the preaching of the king are all manifest. The discipline of the office bearers of wayward sinners is the manifestation of the rule and discipline and wrath even of the king, but also of his mercy, because discipline has for its end that the sinner would be brought to repentance. But more than that, lest already your antennae are up and you're not agreeing with me that the kingdom is essentially the church, in the membership of the people of God is the manifestation of the kingdom. Not just in the church institute, but in the membership of the, king, uh, of the king's children. There are subjects and they are we. We manifest the king's rule in our being ruled by God. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism reminds us, your insert, that the prayer of thy kingdom come is, first of all, that God would rule us by his word and spirit so that more and more we submit to you. That's what is the concern of the subjects who have an old nature, we have sin, but that more and more the kingdom would come within us because we are the subjects of the kingdom, the subjects of his grace. You see here the wider realm of kingdom, and God is king over all of power, is something that is not the essence of kingdom because Jesus is all about showing grace and mercy. And the coming of Jesus is the coming of that king uh, so that there's a people forgiven and a people that is justified and a people that is sanctified and will be glorified. This is on the apostle's mind when he's in prison. He is... He is speaking always in light of the judgment of the living and the dead that is to come at the appearing of God and his Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Paul's hope is that the Lord would deliver him from every evil work and preserve him for his heavenly kingdom. 
So we're talking about the kingdom of Jesus within this whole world. Now, we need to remember, therefore, the nature of this kingdom. It's a kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's the realm which is manifest in his church and in the people and their good deeds, the deeds of the subjects. It is also, therefore, a covenantal kingdom. Wherever the kingdom of Jesus is established, there's what's called covenant, which means fellowship, which means life with God and God with us. This is central theme of the Bible, covenant, closely associated with how the covenant and the fellowship of God with us comes to, comes to be, and that's in the kingdom. Manifest is the covenant in the kingdom people of Israel of the Old Testament. They were the first of the manifestations of the kingdom, but they were like the church would be from every nation, so that in the New Testament, it's still about the covenant and God with us. God is simply expounding the one thing he will do for us and he will be with us and fellowship with us. But that is in this kingdom, this covenant that is revealed now in all the world which will be his as the nations are discipled. More on that in the second point. So this kingdom is of Christ. Second, it is covenantal. Thirdly, it is spiritual. This kingdom of which we are praying thy kingdom come. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is not of this world, Jesus says. It is something that comes, as we'll see, not with observation. You can't see it. In fact, it comes and it's this spiritual way of coming so that we can only behold its coming by faith. It doesn't seem to be coming to the naked eye because all of the nations of the world seem to be yielding uh, or wielding their scepters and having their sway. But it comes, and it comes also in response to our praying about it and preaching. The kingdom is something that is so otherworldly that it is a laughingstock, in fact, to the world. When Paul would say, for example, in prison, and be confident of this, that God would preserve him for his heavenly kingdom, verse 18, the, the, the Roman soldiers would laugh at that. <clears throat> they had a kingdom, and they had a Pax Romana, a Roman peace, and an army to beat the band and to beat off the hordes, which was outstandingly the kingdom of all kingdoms. And then Paul comes, this crazy man with this gospel of a man who came and died and allegedly rose again, and he speaks of a heavenly kingdom, and they'll say to themselves, he's out of his mind. Heavenly kingdom, spiritual kingdom. Well, the Greek philosophers and the Roman philosophers, they teach us that there's not even another world that you can't see as the people today do in this world. There's no other world besides what you can see. So 
the fact that there's a kingdom of grace and of Jesus Christ and the spiritual kingdom is way over the heads of the people of God, uh, the people of this world. And that brings me to this point. There is this kingdom, it's of Christ. There is this kingdom, it is covenantal, this kingdom which is spiritual. And this, I would make this point, that it is one. It is one kingdom. But now, I want to speak to the fact that we all know that really, there are two kingdoms in this world. If you want to look at it a certain way. There's the kingdom of Christ, and that's of God and of heaven, and it's spiritual. But there's also a kingdom of this world that is a devil's kingdom. What I'm doing here is going back to the age, the, the distinction that was made by Father Augustine, that we live as the people of God, as a kingdom of God, we're like a city. That was the metaphor he used, the city of God. But there's a city of the world, and that indeed is a perspective we need to remember. This is what Paul is all about here writing, and Jesus did too. There's a kingdom, and a kingdom that's coming. And then there is this kingdom that comes in the midst of opposition. That's what I'm referring to. It's not two kingdoms of Christ. It's the kingdom of Christ in the midst of this world that we're talking about here, which the Bible talks about. Think, for example, of the first society of human beings mentioned in Genesis 11. The first society, Babel. The first society, it would make a name for itself. The first society, confounded by God the King, who would assert his own divinity and kingship in the judgment of the nations and the scattering them of them to the four corners of the world. But that kingdom persists, and God in his amazing sovereignty allows it to persist, and the devil himself to be the prince of this kingdom of man. So there's Babel, then there's Babylon, which was the nemesis of Judah, and which would burn Jerusalem down and take the Jews captive, hating the kingdom of God in Christ. But then, at the end of time, we read that there's a, another Babylon, the great whore of the nations, who also will occupy his throne in the false church. In fact, Babylon's king will be Antichrist a kingdom against the kingdom of God. One king, dumb, in the midst of another realm of the devil and his hellions, and which is in opposition to the people of God. And we agree with that. There's one kingdom in opposition to this other kingdom, which is no kingdom of God, really. It's a kingdom of Satan, and so there's this conflict all along. Now that has to do with my second point. How does this kingdom come? How does this kingdom come? The kingdom of heaven now and of Christ 
and of the covenant fellowship of God. How does it come? Now, beloved, a, a general answer that needs to be followed, especially in the present conflict that Reformed churches are having about how many kingdoms and the nature of the kingdom and how it comes, I say a, a general and very simple answer to the question, how does the kingdom come, is that it comes through the discipling of the nations. That's what Jesus said we are to be doing. We are to disciple the nations. Let me read the Great Commission to you. After Jesus is, says that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth, he's the exalted king. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the king's mandate for the church. How does the kingdom come as the church disciples the nations, makes real disciples of the nations, not fake ones, not just to disciple the cultures and make them kind of Christian, as we'll see presently, but truly to make true believers out of the nations. For, note what Jesus says, when they are made disciples then we baptize them into God, into the fellowship of God, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. There's a sign and signification of the, the true discipling of nations in this baptism sacrament, as we shall see in our discussion of the Belgian Confession today. There is, therefore, a true making of true people of the kingdom of God in this coming of the kingdom. We need to remember that. This is how the kingdom comes, when the nations are disciples. Well, what does that mean, the nations? Making disciples of all nations. It simply means converting or being used of God instrumentally in the conversion of all God's elect in all the world, so that these people of God become the new nations of God, the one world of his good pleasure, the one kingdom of God. This is what God's all about. He has a world that he loves, and it's the world full of nations of his own for whom Jesus died. And as he makes disciples of them, he would bring them unto his rule so that the Jesus who died for these people and these nations would now be applied in all of his righteousness and all of his bloodworthiness to the hearts of the people. So make disciples. That's the, the simple answer to this, the clear answer to this. This is what the church is to be all about. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, this is how we do it, discipling the nations. Well, how does that go? What does that look like? And about this, there's no end of discussion among Reformed theologians and preachers. How does it go? Let's follow Paul simply. What did Paul say from the throne or the throne, the dungeon of the Roman Empire at 2 Timothy and chapter 4? What does he tell Timothy to do? 
There's one thing. Preach the word. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What's the word? The gospel. The news that God is king revealed in Jesus who establishes a kingdom out of the kingdoms of this world, out of the Babel and the Babylonians to be this new thing, this precious thing, this realm of grace and of treasures, children, you can't even imagine. The great riches of forgiveness and love and peace with God and power of the Holy Spirit and of the world to come, the ages to come. Preach that word when? In season and out of season. Preach it by convincing and rebuking and exhorting because it's going to meet with conflict, with all long-suffering and teaching. And the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine according to their own desires. They'll heap up teachers and, and they'll go after the next minister who maybe is not so hard and who preaches a Savior but not a Lord, who preaches a lovey-dovey but not a king. Preach the word whole counsel of God. It's what we need to do. And then, of course, pray. Where Jesus says, you, know, you pray. Father's kingdom come. In the way of son's kingdom, one kingdom coming. Preach the word. And pray. This is what Paul's Life was all about. In fact, he calls it a good fight. I have fought the good fight, finished the race. I've kept the faith. The good fight. The good fight. That leads to a few things, beloved. I won't be too lengthy on this. But there's a lot of bad fighting that's going on in our theological world and church world. A lot of bad fighting in the name of the crown rights of Jesus who, who needs to be exalted so that every square inch of this world is claimed in his name. I say a lot of bad fighting because it's not with the keys of the kingdom or it's not with the preaching and the keys of the kingdom that's given to the church. Other things are used and brought into this sort of fighting which has turned out to be and infighting among brothers. And so we say, some say you ought to cause the kingdom to come by bringing the law. We'll bring the law into all realms and to the realms of politics, and that'll cause the kingdom to come. And forgetting that the law is never given to the people of God without the gospel. We need to bring the gospel Word of God. And we need to be those who don't have the high hopes that some do, that by bringing maybe the law or maybe a little bit of the gospel, there'll be a kind of transformation of the world in a kind of way, but it's not really the same as discipling because it's not, it doesn't have to do with the converting of souls, but it has to do with God claiming every square inch of culture and politics and so on so that there's a, there's a kind of righteousness and a kind of goodness 
and a kind of sonnet and a kind of whatever of culture that gives glory to God. Well, beloved, when we know the gospel and its simplicity, we need to remember that there's nothing that compares to the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing that pleases God except his son and his people in him. And there's nothing like the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places in Christ. And we ought not to be distracted, is what I'm saying. To be sure, we plant our flags. For example, we're going to go to Turkey. Did you know that? That is, when we give money to the, the, uh, the people in Turkey... And they're saints, and there's a lot of people who are not saints, but they're humans, and we're humans, and we would show the compassion of humanity. But we're going there in the name of Christ. And we're going to plant our flag there. And that's the beauty of it. And as we have distributors, word and deed or whoever, who will make it known that this money is not just money, it's the king's money, and we do this for Jesus' sake. When we do that, we're planting a flag. And we're saying, this is the kind of love that the mediator has for all kinds of people who've made their lives messes. And look at the result of it. They have no, they don't have God as God. Well, we come there and we come with this and we plant the flag. But we need to remember that though we give this money and though there's this help, this is not the establishment of the kingdom, the establishment of it. It's not the case that where we go with money, the kingdom comes just because we have money. It's not the case at all. The kingdom comes when people are saved. And maybe that's what happens out of this. And this is our hope. We're glad to give the money. We're glad to, to go there and to help physically and to lift up the concrete slabs and to, to nurture the people who are just left without parents, and it's terrible. But the kingdom only comes and is there when the hearts of God's people are turned from evil, and the gaining of buildings and the gaining of money and the gaining of this and that, the gaining of all of these things, not only there but in America. What is it? What is it to gain the whole world? We saw last Sunday evening, if you lose your soul, what is it for a country to gain a kind of righteousness and it loses its soul? nothing. It will all be burned up because God is not pleased except with perfect righteousness and there's no one who can merit heaven and the favor of God but Jesus. We need to remember that 
as we're praying the kingdom come and actually doing things, hoping that it will come through our feeble efforts and planting our flags, that the real kingdom of Christ will come and sinners be saved. That's the whole point of the good fight of faith. Let's not be hooked up on what's called the culture wars. This is just raging, this dispute about this. And the attempts, Jesus would have all the glory in every square inch. We do this and we do that and we march on Washington and so on. Well, beloved, some of these things good in themselves, but let's remember that the kingdom comes when Jesus turns on the lights. In fact, I would remind us that this is not something like a crusade that Jesus is calling for, a crusade, like in the Middle Ages. Remember that? And people would seek to convert nations by baptizing them with the edge of the sword. They'd fight this, this fight. Or they'd go to Jerusalem and there was these crusades called Holy Crusades. Children would do that and they'd go to their death and they'd fight the Turks to win back Jerusalem. And knights would do that for King Arthur. Well, beloved, the good fight of faith and the coming of the kingdom has nothing to do with Arthur's knights or Calvin College's knights in the transformation maybe into this world so that it kind of looks like a Christianized place that is antithetical to the coming of the real kingdom, which is the salvation of people and the gathering of the church. How do I say this without thinking like I don't care a rip about the cause of abortion. Of course I do. Or the cause of preventing abortion. Of course we do. I'm trying to say, beloved, is be focused on the true thing, not distracted by the many things. Don't try to say that, you know, if we just have some Old Testament laws applied to the politicians, it's all going to go better for us. It's going to be better, and we're going to get back to America's roots and so on. Stick with the Bible. That's the constitution of this kingdom. That's it. And that's enough. Fight the good fight of faith. Prayer, pray the good prayer. And that leads to this. It's a prayer that we make with constancy, and I hope you do that. Pray for the kingdom to come, the church to be gathered, the people of God to be one, even through the preaching and the good deeds of the people of God who witness of another, another realm than the realm of buildings and Washington, D.C., and Jerusalem, and Grand Rapids, the realm of heaven. Pray for the true kingdom to come. Pray that. Mean it in your prayer so that you would be more godly and I would be more godly submitting to the rule of God. Pray, preach, and love Jesus. Paul loved 
the appearance of Jesus, the very thought of it. He looked forward to it. And he promised that the blessings of the kingdom of heaven would be given to all of those who love his appearing. Don't you love Jesus appearing, his coming on the clouds of heaven? You see, this, this prayer, thy kingdom come, is, is for now, yes, may it come in history, but it's for the end of time. And if we just have the for now sort of perspective, maybe we'll fall into some post-millennial dream and we'll say, yeah, we can improve things now. Though the Bible says that things will not improve, we just hope that we can. We're optimistic, all millennials, we say. Optimism, optimism, beloved, is usually not the same as biblical hope. Biblical hope says God will come even though things will get worse, even though the kingdoms of this world, for all of their goodness and their uniting and so on, they come. We pray for another kingdom, and then we love that. And we long for that. And we will not doubt that God will cause his kingdom to come. May you pray that. Scary things happen in the church. Awesome things. The kingdom comes. The keys of the kingdom are exercised. The prayers of the people of God are heard. Things are advanced. And God is given all the glory. Beloved, think on these things. Talk of them. And do the word of God. Amen. We pray that you would bless us, Lord, cause us to know you and your kingdom, to be ruled by you, to be glad. The very prospect that you will come and you will cause your kingdom to come and you will reign and we with you forever. And Lord, when that kingdom comes, we know there will be a ward of a reward of grace, a crown of righteousness that's laid up for us. We're going to take that crown, Father. We're going to cast it before Jesus because he is our king. And he is the one in whom we love and in whom we are forgiven and whose blood we glory in, whose cross is our life, the foundation of our houses, our buildings, and of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.